Hello everyone, and welcome once again to In the Finest Hour, a 40k competitive podcast giving you tips and strategies you can use in about an hour. I am your host, Sean Morgan, sometimes known as Abuse Puppy, and I have with me to my left our good podcast host, Shaylin Allen. Hello. And to my right, our evil podcast host, Ben Jurek. Hello there. We got a, a nice synchronous kind of set of hellos this time. That's good. It's the yin and yang effect. Ah, I see. You know, so good and evil are, are opposites, but yet still the same. Very deep. Well, no one said General Kenobi, so oh well. Ooh, uh, well, okay. How many of us are carrying lightsabers? You don't know this. I don't. That's why I'm asking. I'm just, it's like, if you're not carrying a lightsaber, I don't think you're allowed to say hello, General Kenobi. It's just, it's not legally permissible. Han shot first. It's confusing. We're, we're not going to delve into Star Wars canon here, because that is um, a whole mess for its own podcast that I don't think I want to be a part of. Wrong universe. <laughs> so let's instead talk a little bit uh, about our own universe here. This ITC season is going to be a bit of a weird one, I think. We have lost a couple major tournaments so far, and like Adepticon is huge. If you want to be a runner in the yeah. ITC, you need to be doing very well at Adepticon. That's just not happening. It's, yeah, and there are many other majors that are just going to go missing this year, which is really going to change people's opportunities to score. Yeah, I think the number was, was saw a reduction of 84% in tournaments. That is what I have heard from Peter and uh, Falcon, yeah. Yeah, all I can just say is, like, all the tournaments in my local area, like, my state's quarantined, the state above me's quarantined, the state below me's quarantined, there's nowhere to go. They're shutting down pretty much all the tournaments, and I I have heard that they may be, like, stopping ITC scoring entirely. At least for those that don't obey their local um, CDC and or government regulations. For countries and states and territories that are not under any kind of quarantine or, uh, you know, uh, protection, then I think they're still going to allow it. Uh, but... Most people are under some sort of restriction at this point. Explicitly, Reese refuses to do well, digital tournaments? That's a different conversation. <laughs> yeah, because digital tournaments raise a lot of other issues. And the ITC would have to set its own kind of guidelines and regulations and all that for that kind of thing. So I understand that not introducing that now when they are already frantically putting out fires is probably a good move. Oh, oh yeah, no, I was just going to comment there's that's not a recourse. Right. But presumably by the end of the year we will start having tournaments again in some form, mm -hmm. um whether they're more limited in scale or what have you because we can't really see that far ahead if we could predict what the the fallout from all this would be, we wouldn't be podcasters, we would be advisors. Much better job. It's, I tell you what, it pays better. Though so you might get fired randomly, depends on how... That's also true for podcasters. <laughs> but since presumably the season will pick up again at some point this year, so what, what do you guys think? Is Are we going to see just these couple of really big majors really define everything? Or do you think there will be makeup tournaments uh, that kind of get pushed out to replace the ones that we missed? I believe there will be some 
small size majors. I'm not talking the hundred plus major majors because those just become logistically such that they're hard to just throw together without a good bit of runtime in front of them. You can't improvise LVO. No. Uh, but a 60-person tournament is kind of doable to throw together in a month or two. Hmm. So I suspect we'll be seeing the under-100 tournaments, uh, GT styles and small majors pop up a bit to try to replace. But I don't think we're going to be seeing a lot of 100-plus outside of what was already on the docket. Interesting. Ben, what about you? My prediction is a number of things. Um, RTTs are going to matter a lot more. That's true, yeah. And those are going to be your... You're going to see higher attendance RTTs cause, because of this, because people are, A, they're going to be thirsty for it, B, um, the more people you have, the higher RTC score you get. So there's going to be that motivation of like, hey, we're going to have a 30-person RTT. Mm-hmm. Might not be a GT, might not be able to do both days or set it up, but you can definitely get three rounds in with a bunch of people and score some points. Um, at the end of the day, like a 30-person RTT taking first is not too different than podiuming a GT. Uh, especially in the like the twenty eight to thirty some count uh, situations, I haven't seen what the new numbers calculate out to. I wonder if you can hit two hundred points with an RTT now. I know you can do uh, the previous season. I haven't, I haven't checked this season. You could do one eighty ish plus, almost one ninety. So okay, um, that's that's definitely within top three, top four of a, of a GT. So it's not. It's not insane. Um, other things you're going to see, particularly in more populated areas, you're going to see GT tickets sell out really quick when they start coming up again. Mm-hmm. So be quick as soon as they announce those. In fact, go ahead and order them now if you know there's going to be a GT in September or, mm-hmm. you know, et cetera, farther out. Go buy your ticket now. Presuming you are financially solvent otherwise, because let's not risk our livelihood for attending a tournament you want to go to. Be responsible with your purchases at all times. Yeah. And this allows some TOs to get money in their pocket ahead of time and possibly even expand their tournament. So it's even better. Uh, it works out on all fronts because we can. you might even get a bigger GT out of it. Yeah. And also, um, just in, in this sort of like difficult time for a lot of us, if you are fortunate enough to be pretty well situated and you're able to support your local game stores and tournaments... Um, this is going to be a really rough time for a lot of them. Mm-hmm. So if you are able to purchase stuff locally and, you know, not withdraw your ticket for a tournament that they had to say, like, well, we can't do it this year, but we're going to do it next year and we'll just transfer everything over. Don't cancel your ticket for that if you don't have to. My piece of advice, uh, money wise, um, is if you have the solvency and you know you're going to spend that money at a game store anyway, mm-hmm. spend it now. Give them liquid cash. Buy a gift card of whatever you're going to be spending later in the year anyway. Um, making rent is hard. Doing other things is hard. Uh, if we're looking at you know a one or two month down period, give them the cash now and just take a gift card. Do whichever. It's it's the easiest way to give them the liquid they need to you know be able to move and exist. Yeah, And then still provide for you, because um, you're going to buy that stuff anyway. Right. Yes. Um, to finish off what I was saying about tournaments, uh, some of your majors are going to come down, like SoCal Open's going to be, you know, assuming you know we're done by then, uh, SoCal Open's going to be a huge, huge uh, tournament, and they're going to sell out. Like, that tournament, at that point, it's just going to sell out. Um, and then you, you have to have performances where you're good at. Like, um, this past season, I played in, like, 10 plus majors uh and you know you can have a couple bad showings and not care you have to perform now yeah i imagine it's going to be a lot 
spiky and random, I would say, just because, like, any any player is going to have a certain amount of randomness whether or not you do well at a given tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, so you may see some of the really big names that you would expect to be up at the top just not perform this season because, you know, they only went to three majors and they did good at one, okay at another, and bad at a third. Mm-hmm. Yeah, league play is going to matter a ton too. League play is actually one of the safer ways if you want to continue playing and you're and you're not under like you know you're not under any orders or you know you and your person are safe or even have let's say you have a roommate you guys have a table mm-hmm. get you know three or four more people you can still do league play that's one v one you can still keep your social distance you can still do all the proper CDC suggested things and still mm-hmm. get your time in. Um, I'm pretty strict about it. I'm not doing anything currently. I work in public safety, so I yeah. I'm just I'm just turned off at this point. Yeah, yeah, especially as they start to slowly relax guidelines over time here. Uh, we're not we're not recommending anyone go out and get a league game in this week, um, but a month or two down the road, then you know this may be a much more feasible option depending on where the status of things is at. Mm-hmm. We'll see. So, having already discussed blocking off your tournament attendance, let's let's talk about another sort of blocking here with move blocking. Uh, a very important topic that I'm actually a little surprised we hadn't hit yet. We did do a brief thing on screening, blocking, and just kind of general movement shenanigans. It's true. But this is a focused episode. Yeah, we we were sort of looking at it and we realized, like, this is a subject that we haven't talked about a lot and often is not specifically talked about uh, by podcasts as a whole. I don't think I've ever seen... Uh, a really good article or podcast on this where I've seen plenty of them on like how to manipulate the charge phase and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've definitely won some games uh, with this you know particular technique just on this alone. Just cool. It is maybe the most powerful way you can use uh, a mo- the movement phase in, for many armies. It is such an incredibly powerful tool and very easy to underestimate. Also boring, but, you know, it's different. <laughs> yeah, well, we're going to try and make it non-boring. That's kind of the goal of this I, whole I, thing. I'm going to go on a limb here and say it's rather not boring and extremely pleasantly satisfying when you watch your opponent get foiled by a good blue move block. Yes, uh, you could certainly call it very mundane, though. There's not, there's not really a lot of secret tricks to move blocking. It's all about knowing when to apply it and knowing which units to use it with and so forth. So let's kind of start at the beginning of this whole thing. Um, What do we mean when we talk about move blocking? And how does it work? What what is the fundamental principle here? Fundamental principle is moving your units to interfere with your enemy's movement. Also known as forcing them to not have a choice. Sure. Let's assume someone is coming in pretty blank slate here. Like... Why can you control your enemy's movement? Like you don't get to move their models. It's it's in the it's literally in the word of the technique mm-hmm. move blocking. <laughs> so what you're what you're able to do um, is you're able to have your models and the little space around them. Uh, there's a magical one inch there mm-hmm. um, that they cannot come within of. Um, and whether that unit fly, would would you know fly over your unit, whether that unit would want to be someplace, whether that unit wants to move on to an objective, um, there's there's a whole lot of variables that we'll cover. Um, 
But at the end of the day, you are you. If someone wants to be able to pick up their model and move it to one place, there's a way to stop it. Yes. And that is one of the more most useful tools in this game is controlling how your opponent, what your opponent is able to do, and what your opponent is able not to do. Um, and play, actually, it leads into completely another you know topic of having your opponent play the way you want them to play versus playing the way your opponent wants you to play. Oh, we have an episode coming on that at some point. We've been brewing that particular potion up for quite a while here. Uh, and we'll touch on it a lot during this one, but it's not going to be the main focus. Uh, but I think the, that is the, the critical thing to remember here is your units all have a magical one-inch shield around them. At mm-hmm. all times, no one, no one, no unit in the game can come within an inch of you during their movement phase. Some units can move past you with fly or similar keywords, but nothing in the game can come within an inch of you during the movement phase, unless they are already within an inch of you and are falling back. Mm-hmm. And even units with fly and whatnot, you know, they may be able to pass over you, but they often do so with certain restrictions. For example, they, you know, not being able to end, obviously, but many of the, the variants of that may only apply to certain kinds of units. For example, knights can pass over swarms and infantry, but cannot pass over other units. Well, it's only when they're falling back. They can't move over in regular. Yes. And there, you know, there are units that may be able to pass over units, but not buildings, or terrain, but not units. Uh, there are many variations that allow you to kind of ignore some of the restrictions but none of those will allow you to move within an inch of an enemy during the movement phase aside from that even in the fight phase movement because that is its own movement phase at least in my world mm-hmm. um you're piling in consolidation movements that's also blockable yes so there's particular things where like you know your opponent's going to assault you um you should also do the correct movements and put your models in particular places where they can't consolidate and say touch a tank or can't consolidate consolidate and say take an objective yes these all do work in the uh, fight phase as well because fly and similar rules work in the charge phase but not in the fight phase so it is not possible to pass over enemy models during the fight phase mm-hmm. um so let's let's talk about why this is so important because I would say this is one of the most important skills for moving. It is the thing that often sets apart good players from average players. So, I've said this before, but your movement phase is the foundation you use to build your whole turn. Mm -hmm. So being able to manipulate your opponent's movement phase will set up their turn to be suboptimal. Absolutely. And it's also a thing that I have hammered on a couple times in the past, is the only phase of the game where you do not need to roll dice to take actions. Uh, You might advance, which can allow you to roll dice, but you don't ever have to roll dice in the movement phase. Mm -hmm. And that guaranteed ability to do exactly what you want is incredibly powerful, because it means that it's 100% up to you. It is not up to the dice at all. You can also set up exactly what you want your opponent to do or just create bad situations, whether you're going first or second. Mm-hmm. Um, and as Shaylin said, there's you kind of you set up that game, um, except 
instead of just setting up what works for you, you also work on your, you're looking at your opponent's end. Like you got to look at their, what they want to do and go, Oh, they're going to want to move these three Lord Discordants over here. Well, if I just move, move, move these guardsmen and just line here, they're going to move a whole, you know, three inches, but careful. You can't move block them too close. They can heroically intervene. Yep. They are characters, um, but you can get pretty guard, goddamn close to them. Mm-hmm. So you, you can you know completely screw up somebody's turn and the entire game plan from the get go. Um, let's say you know going first because you know you they're going to route to an objective or do a certain thing. You go no, I'm going to throw this you know little forty point or fifty point unit out here and you know deny you these primaries and secondaries. Yeah. So there's the other concept which you just touched on. There is movement is time. You get six turns of movement in the game. Yep. As Ben pointed out, he just slowed the Dueler Discordance down for an entire turn. That's an entire turn that they can't interact with the game, and that is punishing. And and even if they kill those guardsmen, which they presume we will, they'll charge into them and just annihilate that poor stupid squad. You've essentially paid points to buy time, which is often a very good deal. Like Shaylin said, the six turns, if you eat one of their movement phases, you've eaten one-sixth of their game time, in essence. Um, especially for melee units. It, it applies to varying degrees for other units, but it is especially true for melee units. And the last most critical thing is, one of the ways to win the game is to stand on objectives. If they can't get there, you're getting points and they're not. Yeah. Um, at its heart, movement blocking is about creating zones where your opponent just isn't allowed to go. And exactly how big those zones are and where you put them on the board can vary with where you can get your units and how fast the enemy is. Uh, but you can often control large sections of the board just by virtue of the presence of your units. Those units don't have to do anything other than exist. And that's actually one of the beauties of movement blocking, is you can often use very cheap and sacrificial units that you may have been just forced to take because of, you know, their troops in your army, or you need to fill in a slot for a brigade, or what have you, um, and influence very expensive enemy units. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, some examples even of, and then ex- examples of stuff where you have armies that can't interact with you, like, mm-hmm. you know, putting flyers in front of plague bearers and, you know, being like, oh, you, you guys don't get to move anywhere, sorry. Yep. Um, and then, you know, now, now you can you can move through flying bases nowadays, but... Yeah, kind of. There was a time where you could, you know, definitely block in your, your entire opponent's army with flyer bases. Uh, I've definitely been in positions where I even, you know, de-jumped uh, my, uh, just a grot squad just to, you know, set up a move block there. So mm-hmm. You can, if you have psychic and relic traits, you know, do that sort of nonsense and do it outside the movement phase if you really want to. Uh, another form of move blocking that I make sure, I want to make sure we don't, don't skip before we get into more, some more details is charge movement is, inv- is valuable also. So going back to fight phase movement. Mm-hmm. If you know you need to like set up a giant line and you have 30 orc boys or 30 zangors or whichever, you only need one guy to make that charge. And then you put enough guys over there to do what you need to get done. Whether it's a wrap, whether it's kill a unit, whatever they're doing. You can If you roll a 10-inch charge, the rest of those models get to move 10 inches and keep 2-inch coherency. You can set up some giant freaking move blocks, especially in units probably going to get countercharged or die anyway. Or if they're blocking shooting for characters and they wrap, now the only thing they can shoot is Zangors and they can't be shot and the rest of your characters hide behind them and laugh. Um, so there, there's a ton you can set up with move blocking and keep in mind it's not just your not just movement phase movement. There's a bunch of fight phase movement and the charge phase one I think is the one people forget the most. 
Yeah, it's very easy to sort of overlook that, that charge phase movement, but it, it can be an entire other movement phase for many armies. Ten plus inches? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why don't we go a little bit into the sort of units that we like to move block with and that we see doing this a lot? Because uh, we mentioned some of them in passing, uh, but I think there are a couple of like, common qualities that you see in units doing this. I got so, a few. Yeah, why, why, don't you, why don't you throw one out at us? Uh, the most obvious is the larger size base is the larger size area of one-inch bubble they provide. Yep. So, for example, a big old unit of Centurions can block off a lot of the board. Big old unit of Paladins can block off a lot of the board. Yes. Also, quantity matters a bit here, because one Paladin isn't going to stop as much as ten Paladins, let's be honest. Sure, although I would argue that units with large numbers of models tend to be better at this than uh, units like Paladins that are relatively low model count for their cost. Yes, though that said, the there's somewhat of an opposite is true there. Bigger bases have trouble fitting through smaller spaces, so a smaller size base can stop a larger size object relatively easy, such as an Imperial Knight. Right. Which was sort of my point, is that, you know, small, numerous units often are better at this than large, uh, more somewhat more clunky units. Which is not to say larger units can't do it. Um, Vehicles in particular tend to have a relatively large base or chassis, um, and some of them can be very, very cheap. Uh, We we have seen very large base units like the uh, Adelon... Ridge Runners, mm-hmm. the uh, Gene Steeler Colt, uh, little like t- Ferraris with a machine gun on top, <laughs> um, and those things are very cheap considering how large their base is. And you can take them in squads. Uh, a unit of three of them can block a huge section of board. Yeah, the the transport, um, anything with the word transport on it, whether it be the trusty rhino, the wave serpent. Um, once they've done their job. Uh, they still keep doing their job, but one of their most important jobs is uh, is screening and move blocking, mm-hmm. especially with the fly keyword, because it doesn't matter if they get in combat. They're not going to get wrapped. Right. Um, one thing you don't want to fall for is setting up a move block where you just get wrapped and you suddenly you now made it a negative for yourself. Yeah, it can work both ways, unfortunately. <laughs> If you have, like, three sections of the board you're trying to block out from three different movements, as Shaylin said, you can set a move block with paladins. Um, in my traditional look at, look at a move block, that's more of just taking a board position because no one wants to go toward those paladins. In fact, paladins love to be charged. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, like, that's the, where the opponent doesn't want to go, and then you put other unit, and then you try and make it, you know, like, yeah, please, please come over here because um, then they're not going to get anything else. Yes. Uh, that's not strictly move blocking. That's deterrence more than move blocking. Although board control, yes, but we're we're I think we're going to set board control aside because while it's obviously very important and useful and interesting, um, if we expand this into every possible use of the movement phase and units that interact with it, then we'll we'll be here for hours and hours. We actually did do a board control episode, so yep. go look at that if you're curious. Another, I think, kind of relevant point is actually, uh, what phases do you need to control enemy movement in? 
because we've been talking about controlling the enemy's movement phase, but you can also, to varying degrees, control their assault phase as well, uh, simply by having units in the way. And if that's what you're trying to do, that you need to block them off all the way to the assault phase, you're going to need to look at things a little bit differently because you're going to need a much more resilient unit uh, if it has to survive all the way through their psychic and shooting phases. Mm-hmm. With units that charge at a deep strike... Um... You know, you're, those, those aren't always screenable, um, at least with some armies that don't have the keyword Phobos to them. Right. And you have to essentially move block those guys and measure, especially if they have a fight again strategy where they can pile in and fight again. Um, you measure, you know, 4.1 inches back. Mm-hmm. Then suddenly that that unit is is going to be is going to be safe. So that's that's a form of blocking um, it, because they're going to charge you no matter what. You're, you're going to get 3d6 charged from, you know, that blood, blood letter unit or whichever. Like, so you got to, there, you can set up that phase. And then on top of that, um, with units that don't exactly have that, or if you want to deter that, uh, behind your move block unit, you can place characters within heroic intervention range. Yes, mm-hmm. heroic intervention can also be used to control enemy movement. Uh, we did a whole episode on that a while back where yeah. Josh talked in detail about it. Um, again, we're not going to get too much into that here because it is a whole episode topic on its own. We proved that already. <laughs> um, but remember that you do have that heroic intervention movement to limit how, what the enemy can do. Another great uh, great move block ability is the fly keyword, because then it yes. can fall back and shoot. Anything with fly keyword is basically a free pass on having to worry about getting wrapped up or otherwise uh, locked down by enemy movement and charges. Mm-hmm. Drones. Drones. Yeah. Um, also, they have big bases. How nice. <laughs> a little bit bigger than other stuff, yes. Um, drones are actually a very interesting case because they kind of illustrate the flip side of what I was saying earlier, um, whereas often you you want a large unit size to block off as much stable space as possible, but sometimes just having the absolute minimum unit size can be sufficient. Uh, I have seen many, many move blocks on the back of a unit of two drones, mm-hmm. um, simply because they're, the two drones are themselves enough to block off a whole section of board from something like a knight or a vehicle without the fly keyword that is just not able to fit past them. Mm-hmm. And then move blocking is a phase you can actually kill a unit in, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of the vulnerable fly and flyer roll oh yes <laughs> and speaking of spells like the jump and at relics like dark matter crystal and large amounts of units if someone you know places a plan you measure that 20 inch arc out uh and up to their maximum move mm-hmm. you can occupy a ridiculous amount of table space with 32 mil bases two inches apart and there's nowhere that that plane can land so you can you can net you know a two hundred plus point kill depending on what flyer you kill, uh, usually in the one fifties um, by just moving. And sometimes it's easier. Sometimes there's just like a little gap in your opponent. You know, it's it's that's a mistake you don't see too many people make all the time. But you you can definitely put people on a bad pickle mm-hmm. with being able to do that, and it forces them to move differently because they know they can get blocked. Yeah. Especially with, with it fits at sits becoming the norm and such, uh, blocking flyers is very important. It also blocks secondaries. Keep in mind we have a ton of movement secondaries nowadays, mm-hmm. and you know board control secondaries. So not only are you denying primaries, but you can also deny secondaries. 
Mm-hmm. Well, let's actually talk about that a little bit, uh, because we, we've sort of been discussing movement blocking as though it were all one thing, but I would argue there's actually several different distinct reasons to move block, each of which are going to have uh, different sorts of units you want to use for them and different strategies you go into. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first thing you have to think about when you're looking at, like, okay, I'm going to move block, how am I going to do this, is what are you trying to achieve? If your goal is to keep the enemy penned up in their deployment zone, then that's a very, very different objective than if you were trying to prevent access to, say, a specific objective or prevent them from charging a particular unit. Those are all very relevant, but you're going to do them very differently. Yes. Yeah, it's as offensive as it can be defensive. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as we've stated before in our tempo episode, it is a tempo manipulator as well so it's like yeah um you you sit there before your whole movement phase again this is most critical thing stop and think do you have an opportunity to move block something really important here if you do take it is often the best answer yeah if you're able to use it effectively this works best when your opponent has a a single expensive or critical unit that they need to be moving to a particular place um Knights are sort of the most classical example of this sort of thing, because they have very large bases, they want to be charging in and meleeing things, they move very quickly, uh, but do not have the fly keyword, so they're not able to bypass most of this sort of thing. Yeah, in this meta, the, the big thing to learn how to move block and move block well is the possessed bomb. Absolutely. That is the monster right now in this current meta, that move blocking is the key to actually beating it. Yes, uh, and and that really illustrates, I think, another important point is uh, you need to know how quickly the unit you are trying to move block is able to go. Uh, because if you have blocked off one of their avenues of movement, there may still be other options where they're able to go around if they're fast enough. Don't forget warp time. Yes, move blocking something like Possessed or Gene Stealers with the Swarm Lord can be very difficult. Not impossible, but it's much more restrictive in how you're going to have to do it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the best move block you do is just like, all right, something useless in front that it has to touch first, and then my counter charge is in the back. Yeah, we're going to talk about a whole bunch of that after the break, because uh, move blocking for charges is incredibly important. But but it's a different type of move block. That's a way to respond to the same situation. Absolutely. Um, if you can limit the distance they move, even if you don't stop them entirely, that can still be valuable in itself. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I think we should sort of just tap on the shoulder real quickly here is units with fly um which ben touched on a little bit with the flyers uh but but even more flexibly moving units such as jump infantry and whatnot uh you can still move block them not as easily but you can absolutely still do it they Um, have to land somewhere exactly land on top of you and So with units with fly or similar rules, or if they're simply fast enough to go around you, your goal is less the sort of move into their face and limit where they're allowed to go. Uh, Because often with move blocking, what you'll want to do is sort of form a a wall in front of them so they can't pass through you. Uh, But if they're able to move over that, what you can instead do is take a more defensive approach and essentially defend your unit, have your unit 
quote, defend some territory. Cuts off their movement significantly. Depending on your objective, what you're trying to pull off, cutting down their movement from 12 inches or 14 inches down to five or six, um, they still moved. They're still going to assault stuff, but like... Yeah. That becomes extremely valuable in time of being, of, especially if you're like running a gun line or castling or something and you need to be able to block something, like... Only giving them that five inches, even though it doesn't prevent a primary or a secondary, is still just as important at, at the end of the game. Yeah, um, and if you, you think about that, no, you can't stop them from lying over, but you can't stop them landing on you. So if they have a 12-inch movement, and you are six inches in front of them, and sort of extending in an arc backwards uh, another five to six inches, um, they can't make use of their full 12-inch movement. They are limited to moving right up to in front of you, or wasting movement going around to the side of you. And in either case, you have limited their movement, even though you have not completely eliminated it. Ah. Uh. The, the, the important thing to hang, thing here is is that, especially those flying units, is trying to figure out what they're trying to shoot or charge or what they're objectively trying to get to. And what I like to do is I like to measure 12 from the thing I know they're trying to get to, and then I start to block out that entire zone to make it so they can't even, you know, if they even want to try and charge it, that they just can't. Make the things they're trying to get to unchargeable. I will also point out, uh, when Sean was talking about layering that distance of no-go zone, Characters can be super useful there because they take up space. They do. Um, the, their low model count is often somewhat limiting. Uh, but that said, if they have to land a 10 or 15 man unit there, a single character just sort of like stuck right in the middle of that section may prevent the entire unit from landing. Mm -hmm. that, that's why I said it's like the bigger the thing is, the bigger area it needs to take up. And sometimes one model's enough. Absolutely. Yeah, and then there's with a uh, with larger groups, um, you're talking about the stream back and such. You can make it where you put like you're trying to if you're blocking like a small corridor, you can put one unit and then measure two inches and then have a guy behind him. As long as that one guy, that one base is getting his block off, mm -hmm. by the time that unit charges and they get a, they're not going to get that many guys in to attack that one model. B, once they once those attacks go through, um, you know you, you're going to be able to pull you know, down that string and whatever else they charge with, whatever they're going to do with their consolidate, it's going to be almost useless. Because mm -hmm. um, they're they're going to kill those, you know, three, four models. They're going to be stuck out with their, stuck out in the wind, essentially. Just, they're going to get shot off the table after that because that's all they're able to do. There's essentially a three-inch free gap you can have in, in between models and different units. Um, much like you can have that 18-inch gap in between... Uh, units that are screening against deep strikes uh, because e each base is going to be at a minimum just under an inch wide and then you'll have a one inch space the, the magic wall we talked about earlier on the side of each model which means any space smaller than three inches they're not going to be able to fit anything into yep so why don't we take a little bit of a musical break here, uh, let everyone groove to some tunes for a bit, and then we will come back around and discuss a lot of the more specific points of how to move block. And we are back talking about some of the more specific tics, tips that you can use to block off enemy models more easily. Uh, I think the number one one that I use a lot is taking advantage of terrain. 
because terrain is essentially free models that you can use to block the enemy in many cases. A lot of people won't let you set a model, like, where it's physically kind of in the middle of a wall. That's just straight up illegal. Yeah, taking advantage of terrain in such a way to limit enemy models, either because they can't be placed inside a wall, because they're not allowed to pass through walls or similar terrain in general, as knights and vehicles are not, mm -hmm. or because the terrain itself does not allow models to move over it. There are many types of terrain that no model can move over. Impassable. Impassables are po quite possibly my favorite to use on the defensive side and one of my most hated on the offensive side. Yes, they can be extremely powerful for controlling your enemy's movement. So if you're looking to control the enemy's movement phase, the very, very first thing you should do at the, at the start of the game, honestly, is look at where are the movement lanes on this table. Where are models going to have to naturally proceed simply because of the arrangement of where terrain pieces are? And also, where are models going to want to be? For example, if they need to get into cover, or if they need to move towards particular points on the board, such as objectives or table quarters or what have you. Mm -hmm. That is the first thing you'll want to look at, is where can models move and where do models want to move? And then you look at how you can control their access to those points with your models. In the new ITC, there's definitely an onus on placing a lot of our objectives. So look at the terrain before you place the objectives. Absolutely. And look at look at opportunities to be able to control part, to give that board control, to block off certain parts of the board and give yourself access to it. Look at what their look at their army makeup. Do you have a bunch of infantry and they have a bunch of vehicles? Can you just suddenly pop out with some guardsmen out of a out of a box over and over again and just deny an entire area of the board to them? Um, then go ahead and put objectives over there because they're never going to get it. These units we're talking about. Often it is a very sacrificial role in terms of mood blocking. Um, you, your movement blocking units are usually going to die because your opponent is going to have to kill them in order to be able to use their movement phase. Um, so if you're looking at techniques for that, we did a whole episode on sacrificial units as well. Uh, and there's some, some really good stuff that Shaylin and Josh had in there. So I would highly recommend you go back there and we talk a lot more about sacrifice plays. Mm-hmm. To go on, on on the whole like primary objective side of it, uh, there's a lot of placed objectives now. Mm -hmm. You can place your objectives completely around what terrain you have available to you and what type of movement you're going to expect. You can also do the same thing yeah. during your deployment based on what secondaries your opponent put, took. Oh, your opponent took uh, took recon, took behind enemy lines? Okay, not only are you going to screen that, but you're going to also look for the fast-moving units that are going to try and do that and capitalize on it. Because if they want to score recon turn one... Put units to where not only are you going to have it be a threat or just block them off from it completely. Mm -hmm. You're Sometimes you're in a situation where you're trying to do either or and both is good. Um, why not both is definitely fine here. Yeah. I was going to say really quick on the note of place objectives is we touched on this a little bit, but if you want to set your opponent up so that they have to like fight over a suboptimal move lane, you can place an objective to force them outside of 12 of areas that might be more optimal for them as well. Sure. That's move blocking their objectives. Mm-hmm. And this all really plays into the this idea of, like, you need to be looking at all this at the beginning of the game. Um, this, is, this is starting before the first turn even happens, 
But it's also something that, as Shaylin mentioned, like, you'll want to stop each turn on your movement phase and look at what's going on on the board and say, how can I control things here? And what is my opponent going to do in response to this? Because obviously they're not just going to passively accept this. And if they do, you've pretty much already won the game. Congratulations. Well played. Um... So think about what are they going to do in response to this? Are they going to move around? Are they going to just sort of accept that they are stifled for a turn and focus on shooting? Are they going to try and use psychic powers or stratagems to circumvent this? Think about how they're going to react to your movement blocking and then react to their reactions in advance because the re the strongest point about being able to control your enemy's actions, and in particular your enemy's movement, is that you can set up situations where you force them to make particular choices, which puts you a turn ahead of them. You can react now to the things they are going to do next turn. And that is extremely strong. Mm -hmm. In the attacker role, um, when we use ITC terms here, in the attacker role in the ITC, you can set up an onus to where you... You're, you kind of control what your opponent's going to do in their first turn, especially on certain deployments. Absolutely. And in this version, be, you being able to re-roll that deployment in some cases, mm -hmm. uh, that's also important because you're like, oh, this is easier for me to do this. I'll just re-roll re this deployment, see if I can get some a little bit different. Maybe maybe Spearhead Assault works for, works better for me. Maybe it's easier for me to block off if I get uh, if I get deployment three. Yeah. Search and destroy. There are, there are some deployments, you, like I said, this is all like pre-game stuff before you even start touching models or you're completely deployed there's the roles too so you want you have to both understand doing it on the attacker side and defender side i love it on the defender side because not only do you you know pick up what objectives are going to be held at the end of the turn uh and such but you also um get to set up react to your opponent and start to control the game from there mm -hmm. on turn one it's a little bit it's a little bit harder to do but definitely doable especially some really fast units mm-hmm I think that the having top of turn being the attacker puts you in a more proactive position where you are you are deciding what sort of movement blocks you want to try and set up because you're constantly a turn ahead of the enemy. Um, so if you can use that effectively to dictate where battles are going to happen, that can be very strong. If you are getting to choose to place objectives and getting to go first and choosing where the battles are happen, then you're you're getting to make a lot of choices before before your opponent gets to do anything. You can potentially be dictating most of the flow of the game if you're just sort of saying like, well, these two objectors are right over here. You have to move through these pieces of terrain to get to them, which means you have to come around this section, and there may only be one way to get there. And if there's no other option, that's what your opponent is going to do, and you know that from the very get-go. Mm -hmm. While a lot of this is trying to block assaults, mm -hmm. you also have to consider shooting ranges of certain units. Um, there's a lot of only 24- and 36-inch guns out there, uh, If and what I like to do is I just like to ask my opponent's threat range, and they're like, well, what, is, what does that mean? Well, something's threat range is their movement plus their gun range. Mm -hmm. um, if I can reduce that, and manipulate that in a way where, you know, I'm getting my guns to shoot where I need my guns to shoot. Their guns are shooting where they need to shoot. I am in the happiest place in the world. Yes. <laughs> so, and like the big example here, at least not a, not a more, but like the Leviathan Dreadnought, well, you could definitely manipulate that guy mm -hmm. um, as far as him being a 24, only, you know, a 24 inch gun with an eight inch, with a what, eight inch move. 
you're measuring 32 inches out and you a are avoiding that range for the most part because that thing's stupid um but b you're also if you're able to manipulate that to where you can hold objective and block him off from being able to shoot you you do it well, and I think something Shailin can speak to is the psychic phase, another place where you can manipulate ranges very effectively. Oh, yes. Uh, because many psychic powers are relatively short-ranged. There are a lot of 6s, 12s, and 18s in there. There are. The other thing to note is that a lot of the, or at least offensive powers, have to crash into the nearest enemy unit. Mm-hmm. That is a very big restriction on a lot of them. You have to be, if you're doing defensive move blocking... Give them a shitty target to psychic into. Right. Or alternatively, uh, a lot, of, almost all shooting powders require line of sight as well. So, I'ma yes. stand behind this rhino. What about it? Can't see me. Right. Uh, so let's actually talk about the other big use. We'll get into assaults in just a second. Um, and obviously, you can use move blocking to manipulate shooting, psychic, and all these other things. But the one I see it, and the one we've touched on a lot, has been scoring. Move blocking can prevent the enemy from getting two objectives, and that's how you win the game. Um, if you are scoring more objectives most every turn, chances are you win the game. As um, Ben said, you only need to be getting three primary points a turn to win a game. Yes, that that is typically going to get you a win if you're able to do it on a very consistent basis. So objectives can in some ways be the easiest thing to move block to uh, because they are there's just a three inch radius around them. And if you can sort of shield that three inch radius off from the enemy, then that's it. They just can't get to it. Um, and for a unit like 30 boys or cultists or something, protecting a 3-inch radius is almost trivial. That is very, very easy to do. Mm-hmm. The other thing that is uh, sort of relevant there is that you don't necessarily even need to keep the enemy completely out of that radius. Obsex a thing? Obsex a thing, and just having more models than the enemy is a thing in many cases. Um, if it's your boys versus their cultists, and and they just can't get more models within three of the objective than you, you control it. It's yours. Um, even if they get within range, it still doesn't do them any good. So be cognizant of how you are going to control those objectives and block access to them. You may do it in a very traditional move-blocking form where you just put a unit in the way and they just can't move there at all. Um, But you can also just block access to an objective or control of an objective by virtue of having a unit there. And that can be just as strong. Yes. Yeah, you can also set up up some pretty fantastic play as far as... getting countercharged by, let's say, one of their beefy units. So you can put your unit on an objective that you need, put a, a trash unit or a flyer or a transport in between them, and now that countercharger unit needs to go through a transport to get to you. Yeah. So that's another turn of that unit existing on that objective and doing whatever they're doing, whether it's killing or just scoring. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that vehicle Josh was talking about that he made great use of the... Dumb space brain vehicle. One of Josh's favorite tricks was to just make a wall of those. Yep. Three three vehicle chassis will block a lot of space very effectively. I believe that episode was the Hunter, actually. the Particularly the missile, yes. Yeah, that's right. 
yes, limiting access and or even just delaying access. Um, as we kind of talked about earlier, if you can just make sure the enemy doesn't get the objectives in the center of the board for, say, three turns of the game, you haven't completely kept them out there, but you've you've scored so many points by the time they arrive that they're they're playing from behind pretty badly. The other thing you've done there is you've had three turns to whack at them, so what's left? Sure. Uh, especially you can combine move blocking if you have good shooting or other targeted damage. Um, you may be able to simply eliminate any of their units that can move past your move blocking. Uh, you know, if all they have is two units of Seraphim, and you shoot those two units of Seraphim to death, and all the other sisters are still on foot, well, they're going to have to deal with that wall of boys, because they have no other way past them. Knowing how to combine move blocking with other techniques, especially ways to damage the enemy army, can be very powerful. Yes. Yeah, looking at, looking at an enemy makeup and going and like determining what you're going to do in a turn, you move blocking is just one of the steps. You're like, I'm going to move block this, I'm going to shoot this, I'm going to assault this. And you kind of, it becomes your answer to like, how am I dealing with each of these units on the board? And like, it's really, really nice to go to look at something at the level of a knight or a lord discordant and go, okay, I'm going to move this little unit over here and ignore him and then shoot all of this. Um, so it, it's, it's nice not having to put that in your priority list of something that needs to you know get answered uh, immediately. You can just go, okay, you get to wait and now it, your turn comes later. And then you can kind of um, <coughs> play the rest of your game with the rest of your techniques that you're doing. Move blocking is just one step of that or one tool in the toolbox. It's for buying time in most cases. It's a big tempo manipulator. Absolutely. Well, we've we've kind of pushed it back a whole bunch, but let's talk about assaults and move blocking, because this is another absolutely critical one. From the perspective of defending yourself against assaults as opposed to using assaulting to move block things, which, as we discussed earlier, can be very effective, but it's not really all that different from just doing so in the movement phase. One of the key things of assaults is you need to be within 12 inches to declare one to start with. Yep, you can't fight anything that is more than 12 inches away from you. Do Howling Banshees still have that rule, a plus three to that? Yeah, they can go to 15. There are a small handful of other units that have rules with, that give them an increased charge range and an increased distance at which they can declare charges, but there are not very many of them. Um, for example, the Blood Angels 3d6 charge or the Blood Letter 3d6 charge do not allow you to declare charges on units more than 12 away from you. Mm -hmm. It's good to know about rule-breaking rules, but that's not explicitly what we're talking about here. Sure. Unlike the one-inch rule, there's an exception. Right. Uh, yeah, there, there exists an exception somewhere in the game. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, yeah, if you are 12.1 inches away from a, an assaulting unit, you cannot be hurt by it. And that is extremely powerful if you are controlling their movement or blocking off deep strikes, because if you simply ensure that they can't get within 12.1 of you in the movement phase then it doesn't matter if they can get close to you later because they just won't be able to use it. You know, they may charge 3d6 and pile in 6 and consolidate 6 and then fight a second time and pile in 6 more and consolidate 6 more, and it doesn't matter. They're still not allowed to attack you. Yep. The other thing to note is that uh, they don't always get all of the 12 inches. 
Yes. That, uh, that is also kind of a thing. It's a very swingy amount of distance they can use there. Yeah. In many cases, a move blocking an assault unit is not going to guarantee immunity to charges. You're simply pushing back the range that they're likely to charge at. If, if they would normally move 12 and you're limiting some that they only move, say, 5 they may still be in charge range of you, but not able to roll high enough to take use of it. Uh, because, you know, oh, well, I rolled a four. It turns out that that five inches of lost movement made a big difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on the, on the defensive end, also, please note to make it so if something were to charge you, it doesn't end up equidistance from the thing they're trying to charge. So let's say they need, they had a five inch charge to one thing and an eight inch charge to another. Um, and they roll like a, they roll like a seven. They still get that seven inches of movement and can put guys closer to that eight, even though they didn't make that charge and then pile into them and fight them. Yes. Try to try to avoid situations like that. You definitely have to be careful of those multi-charges like that and people using pile-ins to get to you that you, you don't, they wouldn't otherwise have made. Because they still declared a charge on it. They didn't make their charge initially, but they can still pile in that unit and fight it. Yes. So, quick reminder here, a well-placed heroic intervention can foil a lot of pile and movements. Just remember that's an ability you have access to. Absolutely. Or if you have some sort of uh, stratagem that allows you to do sort of a reactive charge uh, or something similar to that. Any any of those heroic interv- intervention style movements like that. I actually have one, a game or two, definitely on actually just the interrupt movement. So, something fights, I interrupt... I base all their models and ruin all their movement, and then suddenly they can't do what they were trying to do, whether it be get on an objective or kill kill a particular unit or touch a particular thing. You just using the two the you know the spending two CP to counter strike essentially. Um, you can uh, move block with that itself. Yeah, I did it with Tau. Absolutely, Startled the living crap out of my opponent. He's like, what? <laughs> yes. Uh, make sure you understand how models are required to move during both the assault and uh, uh, fight phases, uh, because there are restrictions on what they're allowed to do, and if you can get your models into the right positions, you can take advantage of those and prevent the enemy from doing what they want to, whether that be denying access to a particular unit, or limiting the number of models that can fight a particular unit, or what have you. Mm-hmm. Another really important thing that uh, I think for using move blocking for the assault phase is setting up counter charges. Uh, because especially if you have a uh, counter charge unit of your own, or if you are playing an assault versus assault uh, army style matchup, like if you have orcs versus chaos demons, mm-hmm. um, dictating how charges happen can be game deciding. Uh, if you are getting to make the charges you want and the enemy is not, you are probably winning that game. Mm-hmm. Long story short, my grots die to your chaos, my grots die to your blood letters, my orcs kill your blood letters. Bad trade. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is exactly the sort of thing that you want to set up. You're, you're blocking their assaults with your low-value units and then killing their high-value units once they've sort of wasted their effort. Yep. So be looking to that in a lot of cases. That can that can even apply to stuff as big as, like, knights. Uh, that if that knight charges in and just dances all over the heads of those poor, stupid guardsmen, and then your Bulgrin or tri- Triple Smash Captain roll in on it, 
you have very effectively killed that knight for the low, low cost of 40 points. So do you guys have any other uh, tricks or things you look for when you're sort of setting up move blocking or strategies that sort of revolve around it? So there's also, and, and this is a, a small part of move blocking, is not necessarily physically blocking it off, but the, the threat blocking off, the board control aspect of it. Yes. Which admittedly is board control outright, not move blocking per se, but it's not unrelated and uses a lot of similar skills. It, it forces them to go to a move block. So you can force your opponent to move block, and uh, sometimes with suboptimal units, it's like, the only thing I have over here is this really important unit, but mm -hmm. I can't have my characters die this turn. Sure. Uh, you forcing your opponent to move block is also controlling their movements. Who knew? The, the key there is make your opponent always have to make bad choices. Yes. Don't give them good choices. Yes, you want them to pick the one of several bad options and hopefully they even pick the wrong one mm -hmm. um so let's let's just hit one last little topic here that to round out the episode how do you play around move blocking if you if your opponent is move blocking you how do you deal with that i have a psychic power that gives me a lot of leeway to deal with that these days it's true Grey Knights get the cheat. <laughs> so do Orcs, though. Grey Knights and Orcs both have uh, their version of the pick a unit up off the table and move it to another place on the table, uh, which is an incredibly powerful tool against move blocking because it means they not only have to move block you from the front, they have to cover the entire board with screening and just totally block you out. And that takes a lot more work. Um, also, one little bit of like latency there. Bam! Yes, it does not take a, a big hole for you to, to kind of punch through in some cases. Well, she gets to move and shoot, clear a screen, and then gate. That's ridiculous. Yes, it's <laughs> pretty good. All in the psychic phase. It's... So aside from cheater powers, how else would you deal with that sort of thing? What I usually do is I will shoot their second tier of move blockers out. So it's like, okay, you can eat this turn, but you won't be able to do it to me again. To preempt their next turn's movement blocking. That's smart. Because uh, I can probably kill an assault, but I've shot off the thing that's going to preempt, like, continue to slow me. You know, shoot the one that is in the back and assault the one that is in front. I try, I try to look at the board, um, depending on what army I'm playing. I, I look at where I'm going to get move blocked, and I try to spread out and make it so I'm not going to get hammed up by, you know, just one unit running out to the center and then standing in a way. Um, you know, I look at their opportunities and to move block, and I try to make it give them bad choices. Or I look at deployment once they're fully deployed and go, oh, okay, the, the only, your only move blocks available are over here. I'm going to go over here and make them essentially not vital to my game. Um, which, you know, they're trying to... We're, we're playing this game of chess here, but that's what this game is. Right. I, I try I try to look at all that. I try to look at how I can circumvent it with, you know, said cheater powers. Try to look at it to where, yeah, that might come up in turn three where I need to deal with that. Okay, I'm going to shoot. I'm going to make that unit, you know, something I want to shoot. Uh, you know, versus being like, oh, I can score this secondary. I can score this, you know, secondary point by killing this unit over here. Or I could, you know, advance my game plan two turn, you know, one or two turns ahead by killing this unit, knowing that they're going to be in my way. Yeah. Um, you know, clear your drop zones is a is a, is an easy thing to say. If I know I'm going to be completely like blocked out as far as like movement, I'm just going to charge into nothing and die. Um, 
so and then to get get shot back and lose my army i'll with armies you can put stuff in reserves i'm just gonna put a bunch of stuff in reserves mm-hmm. kill all your blocks and screens and then drop on you mm-hmm. so sort of preempt the move block by not even using a movement phase correct I think also you you touched on something in there that I think is is very important, uh, which was spread it so that they have to move block as wide an area as possible. Uh, because movement blocking takes resources. They have to move units in. Those units are probably not doing other things in many cases, since they're often advancing or using psychic powers or whatnot. So you, ha- you they do have to invest units and, and resources and points and command points to move block. And the more you can force them... Inv- to invest to get that result, uh, the less effective it will be because they're sacrificing other parts of their army to try and do this. And the advantage to move blocking is that you're using a low investment unit to stop a high investment unit or using a non-important unit to do something important like prevent them from scoring victory points. On the attacker side, I sometimes like getting move blocked. Um knowing that that unit was going to get move blocked anyway, because a lot of times it's it's a free kill on the kill counter. And if I'm spread out and they need to move block me in three places, that's three kills. Now I've got kill, kill more. Um, and possibly a butcher's bill or whatever secondaries I'm looking to pick up. Right. Uh, I, I was going to say the other thing about spreading out means uh, if you're like jumping out and you can pincer left or right, as Sean said, a big area there. But the other thing is if they move block you and don't do it completely or correctly, that's an opportunity. Yes, you can just sort of punch through. Sometimes I actually, they'll use their move block and instead I'll turn that thing into an invulnerable launching pad, wrap it, and uh, then launch off of it the next turn. Yes. Opponents dislike that. We we definitely mentioned earlier that uh, move blocking has some dangers if you get wrapped, uh, and you you have to be very, very careful of that when you have non-flying units. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to go over the technique of when you spread them out, um, you charge one, uh, put all charge both, put all your attacks into one, and then just go ahead and wrap the other. And that's what happens when you force them to super spread out. Yep. Um, and one thing I like to do here is like if I'm like making them cover their entire deployment, I'm going to look for where their countercharger is and then wrap on the other side of the board. Uh, <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Stay away from their, their planned countercharge by just not playing into their plan. Um, it really does reinforce the point is move blocking is all about predicting what your opponent is going to do and what their plan is and responding to it preemptively. Uh, so if you, if you want to get good at move blocking, then always be doing that looking one turn ahead. What are they going to do on their turn? What are they going to try next? And how do I stop them before they even begin enacting that plan? Hopefully, uh, you guys have all found this useful. Uh, I know that it is a bit of a tough situation for everyone out there in listener land, as well as for all of us here on the podcast, as we're just, we're not getting the 40k fixes in that we need. Uh, you don't get to, we don't get to play the games, we don't get to tur- go to tournaments and all that, but we do still have the internet, so if you want to contact us, maybe get a little bit of that 40k fix kind of itched a little bit even if it's not quite as good as playing a game um then you can email us on in the finest hour at gmail.com or you can message our facebook which is also in the finest hour and if you really want to go in deep and you want to kind of get in part of a community have some people to talk to maybe help support the podcast as long as you're not 
putting your own finances in danger, we would hope. Uh, we do have a Patreon. For $5 a month, you can get access to our private Discord and Facebook, and you can chat with the hosts whenever they like and see pictures of their dumb cats and hear about stories of people moving and all the, the fun background stuff that we don't really get into the podcast. So thank you very much to all of our Patreons who are still supporting us in these kind of difficult times. We really appreciate everything you do for the podcast, and it really does make everything that we do here possible. It just it wouldn't happen without you. We'd also like to thank Dank Muse for the wonderful tunes they provide us for our intro and our intermission. Um, and any other time we need that little bit of musical kick, uh, you, can find, you can find them on Spotify, YouTube, and SoundCloud. I'd like to thank Rylan Woodrow, Stephanie Sherman for being our fabulous artists and continue just to be fabulous people. Some really incredible banners coming out of Rylan recently. He's he's done some real cool work. So I think that wraps us up for this week. Uh, next week we will be talking about non-tournament practice, a a subject which I think a lot of people are going to become familiar with in the near future here. How you can best get mileage out of things that are not full-on tournament games against your top-tier competitive opponents. So, for In the Finest Hour, I've been Sean Morgan. Shailen Allen. Ben Jurink. Thanks for listening. <laughs>